0: Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Today is Saturday, June 18th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, to God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We're going to take a diversion tonight from the primary topic we've been covering here, which is the Jews in Europe, here on Saturday evenings. I actually need a little more research time before I present the final segments of that, or perhaps just segment, entitled The Jews in England. Here we are going to present an article written perhaps 12, probably 14 years ago, by Clifton Emighizer, which is entitled Born Under Contract. This article aims to demonstrate that the promises made to the Old Testament patriarchs by Yahweh had confined all of their legitimate descendants under a covenant, which is essentially a contract, and that those descendants themselves would have no choice in the matter. In the ancient world, A father had property rights over his offspring. He had property rights and the power to make such life and death commitments over his offspring. And the offspring had no say in the matter. So, for example, Abraham had an inherent right in his culture to place his son Isaac on the altar and sacrifice him to the will of his God. Now, I said legitimate descendants because the contract was accompanied by a law which forbade illegitimate descendants from reaping its benefits. Here the sophists and scoffers may say something like, Oh, that is not true. The law was not given until Mount Sinai. However, the scripture proves otherwise. Abraham was chosen by Yahweh, as we read in Genesis chapter 26, because that Abraham obeyed my voice, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So a little more must have been given to Abraham than what the scripture describes. Abraham received commandments, plural, statutes, plural, and laws, plural. The Bible, written very concisely, does not always tell us the whole story. And a proof of this is in the fact that Abraham had every concern over who his son Isaac, who would inherit the covenant, would marry. This is found in Genesis chapter 24. And Abraham was old, and well stricken in age. And Yahweh had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house, that ruled over all he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven, and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but thou shalt go into my country, meaning the ancient land of Padan Aram in northern Syria, and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me under this land. Must I needs bring thy son again, under the land from whence thou came? Meaning that he would bring Isaac all the way to Haran. And Abraham said unto him, Beware thou, that thou bring not my son hither again. A generation later, after Abraham's servant had fetched an appropriate wife for Isaac, a generation later, Esau had disregard for this. And his mother made certain that it cost him his share of the inheritance of Jacob. It is recorded in Genesis chapter 27 as having exclaimed, And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? To this we see Isaac's response in Genesis chapter 28. And Isaac called Jacob, and blessed him, and charged him, and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. So the patriarchs and the matriarchs were properly racists. Oh, that horrible word. As a side note, and on a personal note, a point of interest. I had a lengthy conversation with Clifton himself on the phone this morning to tell him that I was going to present this paper so that he wouldn't be taken by surprise as he listens tonight. And we talked about that very thing, Isaac and Rebecca, and what Rebecca had done with Jacob and Esau. Clifton is writing on that presently. This paper by Clifton, born under contract, reflects one of the Paradigm changing, one of the worldview changing revelations which should be realized upon discovering the truth of what we call Christian identity. Understanding this truth should change one's entire worldview as the world really only consists, the modern world, really only consists of two groups of people. Those who are under the covenants of Yahweh and those who are not. There were early covenants made with Adamic man, but as history advanced, more precise covenants with even greater promises were made with only a smaller portion of that Adamic race. Some of the aspects of those covenants have been fulfilled, and because the facts of their fulfillment are shrouded in the obscure details of ancient history, most of the people under the covenants do not even realize their fulfillment but they were fulfilled nevertheless and those very people who are governed under the covenants do not even have to realize how they were fulfilled in order for them to be true but they were fulfilled and those people will be governed by them whether they like it or not they will either comply or they will be punished and wonder why however once we do have the knowledge of these things we can much better appreciate the blessings we have in Christ, if indeed we are under those covenants. And then we can also better understand the responsibilities which we should have as Christians. With this I will turn to Clifton's paper, Born Under Contract. Imagine yourself being born, and when you took your first breath, you found yourself under a binding legal obligation emanating from your ancestors, which you cannot in any way annul. As a matter of fact, if you're a member of a certain group of people, you have several contracts by which you must abide, which will affect every major phase and all the decisions of your life. There is only one group of people in the entire world who are born with this obligation on their physical, mental, and spiritual beings. And as much as anyone might want to find a way to disengage himself from the provisions of these contracts, he himself, he finds himself entirely helpless to do so. He cannot decide. He doesn't want to be under the terms of these contracts. Nor can others who are not under them decide that they want to be included therein. That would be patently ridiculous, noticing the language of the contracts. If you have been designated a party under the terms, you really have no choice in the matter but to comply. It is not open for invitation, and you don't have an option. If one does not comply with the terms of the accord, every means will be applied to bring him back into compliance with that covenant. One cannot plead ignorance to the existence of these contracts, as ignorance is no excuse. Because these binding contracts play such an important role in our lives – it will be the object here to explain them and the penalties incurred for not keeping the terms as prescribed. It is my hope here to show how futile it is to fight these conditions under which we ourselves, we find ourselves obligated from the time of our birth. And Clifton goes on to quote 1 Corinthians chapter 6 from parts of verses 19 and 20 which say, And ye are not your own, for you are bought with a price. And here Clifton takes a quote from 1 Corinthians, which was originally in a different context. However, the application stands in any context. The children of Israel, redeemed from sin and death by Christ, belong to him whether they recognize it or not. As Yahweh said in Hosea, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. In other words, he won't repent of his promise to redeem the children of Israel from death and to destroy the grave. So all Israel will be saved. So the children of Israel have only one real choice, which is evident in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, or towards us, meaning the children of Israel. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The word of God says in Isaiah chapter 43, But now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he did form thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by my name, by thy name. Thou art mine. The modern concept of liberty is a satanic deception. No man is free in the modern sense of the word. We must all belong to someone or something more powerful, because we did not create ourselves. Until the children of Israel recognize that they rightfully belong to Christ, and must obey Him, they will continue to be enslaved by the enemies of Christ, who, as the Apostle Peter said, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. Continuing with Clifton, who further remarks on the concept that ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. But with this passage, we are getting much too far Ahead of our story. For we must go back to the beginning to get the concept of what all of this is about. And under the title, the subtitle, Preamble to the Contract, Clifton says, while it was not the contract or covenant in itself, the intention to give it is foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 13 verse 16. The recipients of this proposed covenant were to be exclusively Abram, or Abraham, and his descendants. And of course, this reiterates elements of promises to Abraham from Genesis chapter 12. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. So Clifton reiterates that the parties of the promise are one, Thy, referring to Abraham, and two, thy seed, which Abraham understood to be his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, and so forth and so on. And Clifton continues, it is paramount, we should observe, in Yahweh calling Abraham, he dealt with one individual and his family. And he says that he will be using the Tetragrammaton here throughout. In other words, Yahweh rather than the Lord. In other words, Yahweh was the party of the first part, and Abraham and his family were the party of the second part. In this passage, the parties of the covenant contract were established. Nowhere are we told Yahweh ever made a covenant with any other people. It should be noted that Yahweh chose Abraham, not the other way around. It was Yahweh who was calling the terms of the contract. In subsequent covenants, the definition of Abraham's immediate family seed would be narrowed down and clarified. When we examine scripture, this covenant is definitely speaking of Abraham's descendants through Isaac and Jacob, not Hagar, Ishmael, Keturah, or Esau. And we would assert, that one reason the covenant was narrowed down was by necessity. The same necessity for which reason Abraham commanded his servant to take a vow, that Isaac would be given a woman of his own kindred to wife, and would not marry a woman of the Canaanites, which Esau did just one generation later. Under the title, Subtitle, Yahweh's Primary Covenant with Abraham, Clifton says this contract is spelled out more fully in Genesis fifteen five, And he brought him forth abroad, and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be and Clifton says, before receiving this promise from Yahweh, Abraham asked how this thing could be. For his only legal heir was his servant, Eleazar of Damascus. Whereupon Yahweh declared that Eleazar would not be Abraham's heir. Rather, his own flesh and blood would be his heir. So Abraham, Abraham himself, tried to substitute for his seed with another man, and Yahweh said, No. Clifton continues, As with all contracts, there are two or more parties involved, but the conditions set forth in this one are quite unusual. At this point, all that was left to finalize the agreement, as described in Genesis chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. And he, Yahweh, said unto him, Abram, Take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle-dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these things, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. And Clifton informs us that this legal process is described in the Believer's Bible Commentary by William MacDonald on page 53, where he quotes a footnote from David Barron's The New Order of the Priesthood, pages 9 and 10, which says, According to the ancient Eastern manner of making a covenant, both the contracting parties passed through the divided pieces of the slain animals, thus symbolically attesting that they pledged their very lives to the fulfillment of the engagement they made. And he's citing Jeremiah thirty-four eighteen and 19. Now in Genesis 15, Yahweh alone, whose presence was symbolized by the smoking furnace and lamp of fire, passed through the midst of the pieces of the slain animals. While Abraham was simply a spectator of this wonderful exhibition of Yahweh's free grace. Meaning, free grace, meaning that nothing was required of Abraham. Abraham had no part in the contract. It was a one-way contract. It was all on Yahweh. And Clifton will explain that shortly. But first I want to say that this and very similar methods of making a covenant are indeed found in Akkadian, Hittite, and other inscriptions dating to the 2nd millennium B.C., and even nearly dating to the time of Abraham. There is an 18th century B.C. inscription discovered at Mary, A city which was destroyed probably even before the time of Abraham. In which the phrase, kill an ass, is synonymous with the making of such a covenant. Mary was destroyed at a very early time. If I'm not mistaken, it was destroyed in the wars of the ancient Mitanni kingdom. Probably not long after the time of Abraham. Because this inscription is dated to the 18th century B.C. The phrase, kill an ass, is synonymous with the making of that exact type of covenant. They would kill the ass and split it in half and pass through to pieces. In a Hittite inscription, <coughs> excuse me, from around the same time, a man who makes a promise of a gift, slices the throat of a sheep. And this is a one-way covenant because it's a promise of a gift. The man slices the throat of a sheep vowing that his own throat should be sliced if he fails to deliver on the promise of the gift. The method persists in Assyrian inscriptions all the way down to the time of Esar Hadan, which is not long before the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. Actually, it's about 50 years before Nehemiah. And Clifton continues and says there is a very similar comment in the Wycliffe Bible Commentary on page 21, comparable to David Barron's quotation above and essentially saying the same thing. Again, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown make a very similar observation concerning this passage in their commentary on the whole Bible, page 27, of which I will quote only one sentence. The patriarch did not pass between the sacrifice and the reason was that in this transaction, he was bound to nothing. And Clifton says, when Yahweh made this covenant with Abram, Yahweh put Abram into a half-conscious trance so he could witness the event but not be an active participant. Normally, each party in a contract was required by law to walk between the divided carcasses. It was saying, in effect, so let it be done to me as these divided animals if I keep not the terms of this contract. In this particular contract, Yahweh walked alone between the slain animals, thus making it a one-way, unilateral compact. Yahweh promising everything, with nothing being required of Abram. Thus all the obligations of the agreement were placed solely upon Yahweh. This signified that it was an unconditional covenant dependent for fulfillment upon Yahweh alone. Clifton makes a, an observation here that Russus John Rush Dooney, in his book The Institutes of Biblical Law couldn't be more mistaken when he said on page 44, Abraham was required to pass between the divided pieces of slain animals. And that's clearly contrary to the scriptural record. So Clifton says, this is just the opposite of what really happened. For Yahweh walked this path by himself. We have to consider, if Yahweh hasn't literally fulfilled this promise of many seed by this time, he is not faithful to his word. If he has kept his word, then somewhere in the world today, there must be a people so numerous, they would be impossible to count. We can know for certainty that this unconditional covenant by Yahweh was directed towards the descendants of Isaac and Jacob Israel only, for it is recorded in verses 13 and 14, where it refers to Israel's sojourn in Egypt. And here we shall read the passage Clifton refers to, from Genesis chapter 15. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety, that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation, whom they shall serve, will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. A reference to the Exodus so we see right in Genesis chapter 15 that this concerns the Israelites alone out of all of Abraham's seed. Then Clifton properly concludes that none of Abraham's other children fit this criteria. So we are assured beyond all doubt this covenant was for Israel and Israel only. Therefore all of Abraham's full-blooded descendants through Isaac and Jacob fall under this contract, which is a covenant in perpetuity. This covenant Yahweh signed, sealed, and witnessed with Abraham, his friend. Once ratified, it could not be abrogated. It was to be in effect forever. Then under the subtitle, Covenant Reaffirmed, citing Genesis chapter 17 verses 4 through 7, Clifton states, 13 years later, Yahweh reappeared to Abram with a reassurance, a challenge, and a richer promise. This restatement, like the first promise, was to his seed through Isaac and Jacob, not the, not to the Ishmaelites, or Edomites, or some kind of spiritual church, or process of spiritual adoption. And it says it, verse 4, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be an Elohim unto thee, and to thy seed After thee, and under the subtitle Abraham, Abrahamic covenant confirmed, citing Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18, Clifton says, Yahweh made a second declaration of his covenant with Abraham after Isaac was offered on the altar. This passage reads as follows And the angel of Yahweh called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself. Have I sworn, saith Yahweh, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the Israel, nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. We'll get to Clifton's interjection momentarily. After that passage, Clifton says, other nations get the crumbs only, citing Matthew 15.27. For comment on the second ratification of the contract, I will quote, Clifton will quote, from Howard B. Rand's Primo Genesis on page 82. Abraham turned and saw a ram caught in the thicket, which he substituted for Isaac upon the altar, and offered a burnt offering to Yahweh. But Isaac had been laid upon the altar, and according to the law, anything that touches the altar becomes from that time forward separated unto Yahweh. It cannot be taken back again by him, who has laid it there. By this act, Abraham dedicated Isaac and his seed to the service of Yahweh. And Clifton cites Romans 9-7 and Galatians chapter four twenty eight and 29. And this is exactly how the ancient Greeks and other pagans made dedicatory offerings or offerings of appeasement to their gods. All of the things which Yahweh had done with the patriarchs, were done within the cultural context and understanding of the patriarchs. How to make a covenant, how to make an offering to a god. These are all things that the patriarchs were familiar with within the context of their pagan culture. And they did indeed have a pagan culture, as we see testified in the book of Joshua that Abraham's ancestors were worshipping all of the pagan idols. So Abraham grew up in a pagan culture. As a digression, and this has to be said, maybe this isn't the place, but I'm going to say it here. As a digression from our topic, many of the neo-pagans who despise Christianity Use Abraham's offering of Isaac as an excuse. I hear this all the time from these pagans who have—they think they're smart. Oh, Abraham sacrificed his son on the altar. They're mean. That must be Jewish. That can't be Arian. Yet the same neo-pagans would extol the virtues of their pagan gods, or properly, their pagan idols. They are ignorant of their own pagan traditions. In the Greek epic and tragic poets, there is a popular account that Agamemnon, the great king of the Greeks, had sacrificed his own daughter. Iphigenia was her name. Sometimes it's pronounced or mispronounced Iphigenia, but it's Iphigenia. Agamemnon sacrificed Iphigenia, his own daughter, whom he sent for. He took messengers and sent them home to his house and said, tell my wife that my daughter is going to get married to Achilles and bring my daughter here to get married to Achilles. It was a pretext. He sent for her for his own daughter under the pretext of a promise of marriage to Achilles, the great Greek hero. When she got there, he placed her on an altar and sacrificed her to Artemis in exchange for the hope of having fair winds for the voyage to Troy, so that the Greeks could launch their attack against the city. That's an Aryan legend. The Eddas of Snorri, the poetic Eddas, the oldest Eddas, Edas, the elder Edas of Snorri also include references to human sacrifice such as that of the Swedish king who sacrificed nine of his sons to Odin in an agreement to prolong his own life this is a story found in the Ynglinga Sangha Y.N.G. L-I-N-G-A saga. Odin promised to prolong this king's life as long as he sacrificed one of his sons to Odin every ten years. So these pagans who despise Christianity because of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, they are hypocrites who do not know their own literature. They're ignorant hypocrites. When Isaac was placed on the altar by Abraham, Abraham was in essence forfeiting his parental right over Isaac to the ownership of God. From that point forward, Isaac would be considered the property of God not by Abraham's choice, but by Yahweh's command. So Clifton continues, At that very moment, Isaac and his offspring became the personal property of Yahweh. By the act of placing Isaac on the altar, Yahweh was now in a legal position to bless or chastise Isaac and his progeny. And Clifton has a remark here, less Esau, because Esau's progeny were in violation of God's law and in violation of Abraham's wishes. In any manner necessary, in order to keep them under the terms of the covenant, Esau's progeny, because they were bastards, are excluded from the covenant. That's why Esau could not repent of his sins. Not only this but isaac's offspring would inherit the strategic sea gates of the world suez gibraltar aden singapore malacca cape of good hope falkland dover and panama though some gates may be lost for a while they will be returned to isaac's sons genesis 22:17 and here clifton repeated the common british israel interpretation tailored for the empire Empire and the British Navy, which can no longer do much of anything. In fact, recently, they struggled and borrowed from the United States to take the Falkland Islands back from Argentina, which should have been an embarrassment to them. However, we would give the prophecy a much wider interpretation. It doesn't merely refer to the British Empire or to the gateways of the sea possessing the gates of one's enemies means having a full control over the enemy's comings and goings, whether by land or by sea and at any point in history, it started with the ancient Phoenicians, it started with the Israelites in the time of Jeroboam 1 when they possessed the entire seacoast, all the way up into in northern Syria into Hamath Back to Clifton, under the heading, A Race Dedicated. Again, for more comment on the second ratification of this contract, Genesis chapter 22, I will quote from Howard B. Rand's Primo Genesis, page 82. Through Isaac, an entire race was dedicated to Yahweh's service. For from that day forward, Isaac's seed became Yahweh's. In the utterances of the prophets and throughout the whole Bible, in the story it tells, this fact is fully set forth. Failure to recognize that a race has been dedicated to serve has prevented thousands from understanding the statements concerning a servant people who would become witnesses to Yahweh's glory throughout the ages. As the story unfolds, the significance of the history of this race, today represented in the Anglo-Saxon Celtic peoples, we would have to add a few European labels to that, will become more apparent. The knowledge of their activities as they fulfill ancient prophecies will further establish the accuracy of the Bible story and perhaps Rand should have said millions of people instead of mere thousands. It must also be made explicit that the chosen race was dedicated to serve Yahweh in one way only, by establishing his kingdom in the world at the expense of all others. Rand's comments, while Clifton did not quote as much, Rand's comments were often meant to promote the British-Israel concept of dominion theology, that the servant race should somehow serve these other races, which is a peculiar interpretation that is not of God. It's incredibly ridiculous and contrary to all scripture. Clifton continues under the heading, Covenant Confirmed with Jacob. Upon realizing he had lost his birthright, Esau threatened to kill Jacob as soon as his father Isaac died. Rebecca, hearing of this, sent Jacob to his uncle Laban at Padanaram until Esau's anger abated and was also to seek a wife as charged by Isaac on his journey one evening having no bed. He placed his head on a stone to rest. Entering sleep, Yahweh appeared to him in a vision. In his dream, Jacob saw a ladder which reached from earth to heaven, with angels ascending and descending. At the top of the stairs was Almighty Yahweh himself. Jacob, Yahweh said to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 through 15, I am Yahweh, the mighty one of Abraham thy father, and the mighty one of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. And thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the south and to the north. And in thee and in thy seed shall all thee, and Clifton has here an interjection, Israel, families of the earth, be blessed. And he cites Mark chapter 7. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. Here Clifton added the word Israel, and cited an example supporting his addition, which is found at Mark chapter 7 verses 27 and 28. There Christ said to a Canaanite woman, That it is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Now, there are some who may want to criticize Clifton for this, for adding Israel to the text before the place where it says that all the families of the earth be blessed. Clifton says all the Israel families of the earth. However, Paul of Tarsus interpreted this promise to Abraham in the exact same manner. But it cannot be told from the King James translation of the passage, which is just ridiculous. In Galatians chapter 3, with the understanding that Paul is writing in reference to sinners who were under the law, as he explains in that epistle, he said, and the writing having foreseen that from faith Yahweh would deem the nations righteous, announced to Abraham beforehand that in you shall all the nations be blessed. Talking about the Israel nations. So those from faith, the faith of Abraham, what did Abraham believe? What was Abraham's faith? That his seed would become many nations like Yahweh promised. Paul is talking about those nations here in Galatians chapter 3 that Yahweh would deem the nations righteous, the nations of the promise to Abraham. So he announced to Abraham beforehand, beforehand, that in you shall all the nations be blessed. So those from faith are blessed along with the believing Abraham. Now, even if we did not have the understanding which Paul had, we certainly could not extend this blessing to those outside of the descendants of Noah. Yahweh's talking to Abraham in the context that Abraham understands in Genesis chapter 12 where this promise is first iterated. Where the promise in Genesis 12.3 says, In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The phrase, all the families of the earth, is defined in the final verse of Genesis chapter 10. Just a couple of dozen passages before Genesis 12.3. And in Genesis 10.32, it says... After listing the families of the descendants of Noah it says these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood so if we read Genesis 10.32 and then go read Genesis 12.3 and the only thing that happened in the middle was the division of these families after the Tower of Babel event, how could we imagine that these promises belong to anybody but those of the Adamic race, the descendants of Noah? We can't. So they cannot be extended to Negroes, to Chinamen, or to people of any other race that does not have their ancestry in the sons of Noah. However, the true and ultimate purpose We prefer Paul's interpretation in Galatians chapter 3, because the true and ultimate purpose of the promises to Abraham is also expressed in Isaiah chapter 28, in verse 6, where it says, He, meaning Yahweh, he shall cause them that come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. With that same perspective, Clifton writes, of this promise to Jacob, this vision he had while his head lay on a stone at Bethel. Awakening in the morning, Jacob knew he had been in the presence of Yahweh. He then took the stone he had used as a pillow, set it up as a pillar, and consecrated it as Beth-El, the house of the Almighty, or the house of God, as it's generally interpreted. Therefore, El means Mighty One or Almighty One, as well as God. Therefore, the stone bore the holy anointing of Yahweh. To claim that Palestine alone was to be the place of the covenanted expansion promised to Jacob and his seed is to fail to recognize that Jacob was in Palestine which is a pretty small place when he was told that his seed would spread abroad in all directions of the compass. For anyone still under the illusion that Palestine is the only promised land should research this passage again. Jacob then vowed a vow If Yahweh would be with him and keep him in the way he went, if Yahweh would provide bread to eat and raiment to wear, if Yahweh would bring him back home in peace, then shall Yahweh be his El, his Almighty One, or his God. This pillar which he set up shall be the house of El, Beth El. And in all his increase, he would give Yahweh a tenth. Question. Was Jacob just speaking for himself on the six items above, or was he speaking for all of his progeny? In the ancient world, when a man made a commitment such as that, he was also committing his sons, his heirs, his progeny. After spending many years under the subtitle Covenant Reaffirmation to Jacob, After spending many years in the land of Haran, Jacob collected That's the years with Laban for his two wives and their two concubines. Jacob collected all the numerous possessions he had acquired, along with his wives and children, and quietly left the house of Laban. On his return to the land of his fathers, Isaac and Abraham, in the short term, the angels of Yahweh came to meet him, and he called the place Mahanaim, which means two hosts or camps. While contemplating meeting Esau, who years before had threatened to kill him, Jacob separated himself from his family by sending them across the brook Jabak, where he stayed alone and prayed for Yahweh's help. Jacob, being alone, perceived being touched by a man, actually an angelic messenger, with whom he wrestled all night until morning. Being frightened to face Esau, Jacob would not let go of the angel of Yahweh until he blessed him. Not being able to overcome Jacob, the angel touched him on his thigh, which in turn came out of joint. Jacob, admitting that his name meant supplanter, the angel said, Thy name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with Yahweh. And prevailed. Genesis chapter 32, 12 and 28. And thou sayest, verse 12 first, And thou sayest, I will surely do thee good, And make thy seed as the sand of the sea Which cannot be numbered for multitude And he said, thy name Shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel For as a prince Thou hast had power with Yahweh and with men And hast prevailed It is my opinion That Jacob was being tried by God And did not give up in spite of the fact that his leg was miraculously put out of joint as he wrestled, which would be a huge handicap in any wrestling match. Even with that, Jacob did not quit until he obtained the promise of a blessing. This alone is a prophecy and an example for Jacob's descendants today. Just like Jacob, not even knowing it, they contend with their God today. (laughs) Clifton continues, Following this, Jacob and Esau made a precarious, short-lived reconciliation. Upon Jacob journeying on to Bethel, Yahweh renewed his covenant with him. It was not a new covenant, but the same covenant he had made with Abraham and Isaac before him. In Genesis chapter 35, verse 11, And Yahweh said unto him, I am Yahweh Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And I would say that here it must be stated that when Rebekah had arranged for Jacob to receive the promises rather than Esau, she told Isaac why she had done this. When she said, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth, If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? And that is why Isaac responded by informing Jacob that he must not do that, so that he must instead take a wife of his own people. As a result of his obedience, however, And this is when Isaac gets it, after Rebecca tells him. Jacob was also assured by Isaac that he, if he took a wife of his own people, that he would receive the blessing of Abraham. Because that's when Isaac realized that Esau couldn't have gotten it. So while Jacob obtained the original blessing by deception, Here we see that Isaac affirmed the decision of his wife and agreed that it was righteous. Where it is written, in Genesis chapter 28, and Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. This is immediately after. Jacob substituted himself for Isaac at Rebekah's beckoning, and received the blessing instead of Esau in Genesis 27, and blessed him and charged him, and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people, and give thee the blessing of Abraham, to thee, and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger which God gave unto Abraham. So we see that Isaac, after he was reminded by his wife of why Esau couldn't get the birthright because of the daughters of half, Isaac affirmed what Rebekah had done in Genesis 27 and explicitly told Jacob that if he married within his own people, he would receive the blessing of Abraham. So Clifton continues under the heading, Yahweh's Chosen People. And he says, from the foregoing, referring back to Genesis 35.11, it should be quite obvious that Yahweh does have a chosen people. As a matter of fact, Yahweh chose his people, and in no way can anyone choose him, meaning nobody can choose, choose Yahweh. <laughs> they may choose to serve him. And I would say they may at least think they may serve him, but cannot choose him personally, for he has already made the choice of choosing us, and we have no say in the matter. To back up the statement, I will quote Deuteronomy seven six, meaning Clifton is quoting Deuteronomy chapter seven verse six. For thou art a holy, meaning set apart, people unto Yahweh thy el. Yahweh thy El, Yahweh thy Almighty, has cho- chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And Clifton says, for more witnesses that this is speaking of Israel only, let's consider the following passages. Isaiah forty-one eight, But thou, Israel, art my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Isaiah forty three ten. Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant, whom I have chosen, speaking, of course, to the children of Israel. And Isaiah 44, verses 1 and 2. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith Yahweh that made thee, and formed thee from the womb which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and now, Jesu-run, whom I have chosen. Jesu-run meaning, I believe, if I remember properly, Yahweh planted. Here I am going to differ with Clifton just a little, although I am confident that he would agree. Where he said of other peoples they may choose to serve him, That is apparent from our perspective, but we must ask this, is it apparent from God's perspective? The children of Israel were commanded to be a separate people. If there are aliens among us, no matter the motives of the aliens, their mere presence is still a violation of Yahweh's divine will because his divine will insists that the children of Israel be separate. So we have the words of Christ in the Gospel. In Matthew chapter 7 Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works. So they must be attempting to serve Jesus. They must believe Jesus, or they wouldn't have done anything in his name. So they must profess to believe in him. And he says, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The people who he rejects apparently chose to serve him, but he rejects them nevertheless. And we're told why in scripture, where Yahweh said in Amos three two to the children of Israel, you are the only people I have known in all the earth. So he tells these people, I never knew you, beat it, scram. They're working iniquity. Why are they working iniquity? Because they are aliens among God's people pretending to be godly. They can't be there, according to the divine will of God. Of course, we're being punished today. We're existing under the permissive will of God because Israel is in a time of punishment. But that still doesn't mean that the divine will of God doesn't stand. It certainly does, and it shall. Clifton is certainly correct that Yahweh God chose Israel And no man can choose Yahweh as their God. And that includes you and I. If we're not truly Israelites, in the end, he's going to say to us, get away from me, I never knew you. And that's the divine will of God. And we're going to be forced to accept that. No matter how much we cry and kick and scream, you can't do this to me, I helped you. I did this and I did that. No. No, 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 no. There's no free rides to heaven based on works. You have not chosen me, Christ told his disciples. I have chosen you. And I have chosen you out of the world. And the rest of the world will go to hell. That's just the truth of the scripture. Under the heading, False Doctrine of Being Born Again, Clifton says... While it is not our desire to ridicule anyone's prayer to Yahweh for repentance, such as found in 2 Chronicles 7.14, or, if my people, right, or any effort one might put forth to amend one's ways, but the doctrine of being born again cannot be found in Scripture. I am sure many might be quick to quote John 3.3, 3, where it says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, in the King James Version, he cannot see the kingdom of God, or Yahweh. Actually, this passage does not say born again, but born from above. You'll have to admit there is a world of difference between being born again and being born from above. Being born from above simply does not imply being born again. You can check almost any Bible commentary and it will confirm born from above is a correct rendering. It would have to because the Greek word anothen really means nothing but from above. And Clifton says it may also be rendered from the beginning, which is true. It was Nicodemus only who didn't understand this. And churches as a whole have taken the same position he did. While the churches do not go to the extent of saying one must re-enter one's mother's womb, they take another erroneous position. Nominal churchianity takes the position, if a person, and he could be from any race, chooses Jesus as his personal savior and believes on him, he can enter the kingdom, and somehow this new candidate is regenerated or born again of the spirit. That this passage should have been translated, born from above, is illustrated in Matthew Poole's A Commentary on the Holy Bible, volume 3, page 290, and Clifton quotes. The word translated again is anophan, which often signified from above, and basically that's all it means. It's a preposition indicating that something comes from a certain place. And in this place, from above, there are equivalent Greek words which mean from below. Anothin could mean from the beginning in the sense of items in a sequence. And you're going up a row. Or down a row of items in a sequence. In that aspect, it could mean from the beginning. But it literally means from above. Comparing verse 3 to verse 31, Clifton's words, talking about John 3.31, where the King James translated the word anothen as from above, Comparing verse 3 to verse 31, we can plainly see it should have been translated from above as it uses the same Greek word. John 3.31 He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthy and speaks of the earth. He that comes from heaven is above all. Now we can understand that the expression born again is a mistranslation. Let's take a better look at this passage from found in John chapter 3 verses 1 through 21. What we have here is a man of the Pharisee sect by the name of Nicodemus coming to the Messiah by night to inquire more concerning the kingdom of Yahweh. No doubt Nicodemus was a good man and a true Israelite. For he defended Yahshua at his trial, recorded in John chapter 7, verses fifteen and 51, and attended with Joseph of Arimathea at his burial, recorded in John chapter 19, verses 38 to 40. This was part of the conversation our Anointed One, meaning Christ, had with him, recorded in John 3, verses 3 through 7, Clifton says, or cites... Joshua answered and said unto him verily verily I say unto thee except a man be born from above the proper translation he cannot see the kingdom of Yahweh Nicodemus said unto him how can a man be born when he is old can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born now there's one telling thing here and that's that In the first century B.C., as John Lightfoot explains, and as Clifton has cited in other papers, the Judeans were baptizing their proselytes in water. Nicodemus must have understood what the ceremonial mikvah was being used for at that time. It was for the baptism of proselytes to Judaism. Nicodemus heard that word, born from above, or that phrase in Greek, he didn't think of the mikvah. He didn't think of baptism at all. He thought about an actual physical rebirth. That was his mistake. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Yahshua answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of Yahweh. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born from above, and here Christ is defining for us what it means to be born from above. And Clifton says, what we have in this passage is a paraphrase, which is defined in the dictionary as a restatement of the meaning of a passage in different words. In other words, the secondary statement is a restatement using different words to help define the meaning of the primary statement. A paraphrase is two parallel statements saying the same thing, but in different words. Actually, what we have in this passage are three statements in parallel. And here Clifton is using the word paraphrase, which is fine, to describe the Hebrew literary device called parallelism, which is found very frequently throughout both the Old and New Testament scriptures. By paraphrase, Clifton means that one statement is a repeat of the previous statement. He's not referring to the translation. He's referring to the fact that one statement is a repeat of the previous statement using different words. And Clifton says, now that we know what a paraphrase is, let's examine the primary, secondary, and the tertiary Parallel statements of this passage. In verse 3, the expression, except a man be born from above, implies an additional birth other than a physical birth. So the first statement suggests a natural birth, plus a birth from above, being a paraphrase. The natural birth is inferred, because of course, every man is born of a woman. The secondary statement, must repeat the same message, but with different words. In the secondary statement of verse 5, it speaks of water and spirit. In the third parallel statement of verse 6, it speaks of flesh and spirit. Therefore, the physical birth implied in verse 3 is the same as the water and the flesh of verses 5 and 6. And the born from above of verse 3, is the same as the spirit of verse five and the spirit of verse six so natural birth is the reference to water or the reference to the birth of the flesh where the phrase born from above is a reference to the spirit of verses five and six in other words the natural birth of verse three is the same as water and flesh and the born from above of verse 3 is the same as spirit which is mentioned twice once we understand the parallel of the natural birth we soon understand the water surrounding the child breaking and producing a body of flesh when we understand the born from above We then comprehend the birth of the Spirit by the Spirit of Yahweh. The water in this passage has nothing to do with baptism. And that's an excellent observation, because Christ clarified what it means to be born from above twice. Nicodemus didn't get it, and the churches still don't get it. Some say the Spirit birth happened in pre-existence, which may have some merit. That's Clifton's statement. Whether or not such a thing is true, we can be sure. The spirit birth happened when Yahweh breathed the breath of life into Adam. Now, I'm not going to beat my chest, but I'm kind of certain that when Clifton wrote this paper, he didn't really have the benefit of my own translation of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But, Many early Christian identity adherents did teach this pre-existence of the spirit. Wesley Swift, I'm not sure about Bertrand Compare. While Clifton does not seem certain, I would deny the notion of pre-existence of the spirit, as it is not supported by scripture. Like many of the followers of Wesley Swift, think it is supported. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, inform, Paul of Tarsus informs us in verse 46, But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural, then the spiritual, using an allegory of the natural man and his spirit, the spiritual man, and how the resurrection happens. Paul says, the first man from out of earth, of soil, the second man from out of heaven. So the spirit does not come before the flesh. Not if you believe Paul of Tarsus. The fleshly comes first, the natural man, and then the spiritual Explaining how the spiritual body comes to exist, in that same chapter he had said at verse 44, it is sown, a natural body. This is why in 1 John, the Apostle John says that if your seed is in you, you cannot sin because sin will not be accounted to you. In other words, if you're of the pure seed, if you're of the pure seed, then you're not a broken cistern and your spirit will be the spirit of God. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. So the valid conclusion is that the body of flesh comes first, and the spiritual body forms along with the fleshly body from the same seed. So Clifton continues his discussion of being born from above, and he says, Therefore, Adam became a spirit man, a living soul, and the father of a race of spirit men and spirit women. Throughout the Bible, it differentiates, yes it does, between earth men and spirit men. The Adam-man was the only race born with the Spirit of Yahweh. The other races are born of the flesh, but not the Spirit. Once we understand this, we can comprehend such verses as 1 Corinthians 2.14, which reads, But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of Yahweh, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And as Paul also said, the law is spiritual, so only those with the spirit of Yahweh can possibly understand it, which is a prerequisite to keeping it. But, since we may follow our fleshly nature in sin, that alone is not a guarantee that we will keep it. Clifton continues by saying, The next important statement is made by the Messiah to Nicodemus. Recorded in John three hundred ten, when he said to him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? This should give us a pretty good idea that what Yahshua told Nicodemus he ought to have known can be found somewhere in the Old Testament. It is also possible the spirit spoken of in John chapter three verses two through eight may have significance overlooked by many. While we know it is true concerning Adam being a spirit man, this passage may be speaking of something beyond this in scope. Let's take a look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. A new heart also will I give you, a promise to the children of Israel. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And while we must, of course, agree with this, we would say that there is also something else going on here. Where in the wisdom of Solomon, at the end of chapter 2, We are informed that God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. God's spirit added to our spirit makes us complete, there is no doubt, but we have a spirit from God bestowed upon our race, which is immortal, according to Romans chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the wisdom of Solomon. However, Christ tells us that when we keep his commandments, then he and his father come and dwell in us. That makes us whole. So, Clifton and I might interpret Ezekiel 36 a little differently. In, in the end, it all sums up to the same thing, and it really doesn't matter. And Clifton continues by saying, It should be noted in the passage just quoted, that it is directed only to Israelites, for they alone receive the statutes and judgments. With all of this, it should become quite clear what is meant by being born from above. You have the Spirit of God if you are a member of the Adamic race, and you're not a broken cistern. Clifton says it should be quite obvious when it is speaking of the water. It is speaking of the natural birth process and not baptism. If you're a broken cistern, you can't hold water. It should also be quite evident that the being born again doctrine taught in the mainstream churches is not at all the spirit birth taught in scripture not at all. Nicodemus hearing word rumored about concern word rumored about concerning the Messiah's teaching of the kingdom, decided to investigate the matter with Joshua himself. We have to imagine, poor old Nicodemus, when he misunderstood, he might have to re-enter his mother's womb to gain entrance thereto. What a strange way to enter the kingdom of Yahweh, he must have thought. He was probably familiar with the usual civil laws for entering a country by the right of birth in an earthly kingdom. But to enter the kingdom of Yahweh, he finds he must enter by the right of the spirit birth breathed by Yahweh. He was informed that natural man receives not the things of the spirit of Yahweh, 1 Corinthians 2.14. In Nicodemus' eyes, the Messiah introduced a whole new, but really old, concept of the kingdom of Yahweh, John 3, six of flesh and spirit. Every Adamite has two births, one from earth, one from above, one of his body, and one of his spirit. Without the first, he cannot enjoy the earth. Without the last, he cannot see or enjoy the kingdom of Yahweh. The one is visible, the second is invisible. Galatians chapter 4. And this is precisely what Paul was describing, where we had cited his words from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that it is born a fleshly seed, a natural seed, and raised a spiritual seed. And, Clifton continues under the heading, The Invisible Kingdom, after Messiah explained to Nicodemus both the physical and spirit dimensions of the kingdom in John three eight. He goes on to compare the spirit to the phenomenon of the wind. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence it cometh and whither it goes. So is every one that is born of the spirit. While the wind blows in a variety of directions, and we can hear its sound, perceive its operation in the motion of the trees, and even feel its touch, we cannot discern the air itself. The motion of the wind is imperceptible but we can gauge it by its risings, fallings and changes of directions. We can only know that it exists by the effects which it produces. Like natural birth, the spirit reproduces by the law after its kind. Miscegenation, therefore, brings death to the spirit. In scripture, both in Greek and Hebrew, The words spirit and breed are constantly brought together. Therefore, inasmuch as Yahweh breathed into Adam his breath of life, they are both of the same spirit. And we would add to that for Clifton that we know the spirit exists by the effects it produces. That is why Christ said, By their fruits you shall know them. And Clifton concludes, As the kingdom's coming is imperceptible, Yahshua said in Luke 17 the kingdom of Yahweh comes not with observation, truly the kingdom must be reconciled with the covenant, for we are legally his from the first breath. If you're not part of that covenant promised to Abraham, you're not part of that kingdom. That is why at the end of the scripture, in the last chapters, the kingdom of heaven. The city of God descended from heaven has on its gates the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. If you're not from one of those twelve tribes, the only other option is the lake of fire. At least it'll be warm. Here we must thank Clifton for his efforts, and pray that more of our brethren come to share this proper worldview derived from Scripture, and firmly grounded in the promises to the patriarchs, as Luke recorded, and as Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, had testified, Yahshua Christ came in a flesh in order to fulfill, to keep those same promises. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. When the levy breaks, that's appropriate for talking about water and the spirit.